Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 414. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch bin Yomen ben Menuchalena and Miriam Baschayasar Altais, Yukosil ben Leah Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todus ben Miriam and Sarabas Rochel Altais. So we're coming literally from Tishabov and the 10th of Av. This year, the fast was pushed to the 10th of Av, the lowest point, the saddest day of the year, when we commemorate and remember and relive the destruction. The point of the destruction, as we discussed and Chassidus elaborates upon, is in order to rebuild something greater. So even in the throes, and when the fires were at their highest, consuming the Holy Temple, Mashiach was born, as we discussed last week. But yet, at that time, we have to honor and be sensitive to the pain, to the loss. Because if you don't experience it, you can't grow through it. But now, once it's passed, what happens now, now starts the aliyah, the elevation, all the way leading to the 15th of Av, which was this past Friday. Why? Because this is the elevation that comes, the full moon, after the terrible descent of the, the damage done to Malchus, to the dignity of the bridge and interface between heaven and earth and the Beis Amikdash. So it's the greatest holiday because it's in direct commensurate, in direct proportion to the descent comes the ascent. And every day following, we continue to grow in this building and rebuilding. And indeed, that's exactly what Moshe Rabbeinu was doing. Where is he right now? He was on the mountain beseeching God for forgiveness. After the Jews built a golden calf, 39 days after they received the Torah, Moshe comes down from the mountain and he sees it and he breaks the tablets on the 17th of Tammuz, the beginning of the three weeks. And he goes back up on the mountain to ask God for forgiveness. And though he wasn't successful immediately, but we know the end of the story. The end of the story is that ultimately he would come down after another 40 days and go up for a third time 40 days and then return Yom Kippur with forgiveness. Forgiveness. Returning with the second tablets. And that's why the 15th of Av is equated with Yom Kippur because both of the message of rebuilding after destruction reconciliation after betrayal, which in many ways is even stronger because it comes from the darkness. And that's the period we're in now. So if you were to make a headline, what is this time? What is the energy of the time we're in? Is rebuilding. No matter what you've experienced in life, the power to rebuild. Moshe, Moses, was begging God and said, you have to give me. Yes, they were responsible for their crime and they need to be accountable. But you need to give me a glimmer of hope. You need to give me that, a, a message that we can repair, that we can fix. And he ultimately prevailed. So we're now that period of rebuilding. And as the days continue, it continues to grow the comfort. And indeed, what is this period called? Shiva de Nechemta. The seven weeks of consolation of comfort that followed the three weeks of affliction. Beginning with Shabbos Nachmu yesterday. And then comes the next Shabbos, this coming Shabbos, the second week of the, of the seven weeks of comfort. 
each week, Mylon Bekedesh, we grow in the comfort and consolation. It's not just comforting us, it's giving us the strength to rebuild from loss, to rebuild from darkness, to achieve even a greater light. And this will continue seven weeks until the Shabbos before Rosh Hashanah. So this is the period of renewal, the period of rebuilding, the period of reunion, recreating a better life. So no matter what has happened in a person's life, the lesson to us is this. This is now the period where you learn to draw the negative energy and transform it and harness it into positive energy. That's where we are right now. The period that follows Tisha B'Av and follows the days of 15th of Av as we continue, which is the focus is on the Menachem Av. The month has two words, two names. Menachem Av, the Nechama, the Menachem Av Av, of all the sad events that happen in the month of Av, now we're being comforted and consoled. So even though the Av begins with that as well, it's also called Menachem Av, but then there's the emphasis. The first part of the month, especially the first nine days, is the emphasis is more on the sad part. And now it's on the, on the joy and the growth and the beauty that comes out of that sadness. The Berina Yuktseda, the reaping and joy that comes out of the Hazedim Bedima, the sowing with tears. So the lesson is a critical lesson and a tremendously important lesson in life. And we learn it specifically from this period in time. Okay, so that's an overall lesson from this, this, this time period. We'll talk more about, that. I've got, received many questions about what, what other factors, that, what other important things that we can learn in these last two weeks of Av as we prepare for the month of El, which in turn prepares us for the new year. And we'll also talk about certain post, certain questions that came in around post 15th of Av and other related matters. But being that this week is also Chafav, the 20th of Av, which is um, the 78th yard site of the Rebbe's father, who passed away in Chafov in Tavshin Dalad, 1944. We're now in 2012, so 20, 20, 2014 will be 80 years. We're now in the 78th year. <clears throat> so let's, let's, let's talk a few about the significance of Chafov and a few questions that came in about that as well. So firstly... Though Rabbi Yitzchak, the Rebbe's father, was a ben acher ben, a son of a son, a grandson of the Semach Tzedek, but he's not one of the seven Rabbeim. And yet, especially in later years, the Rebbe began to quote his father when he would usually quote all the Rabbeim in the Maimorim, in the Hasidic discourses, he would also quote something from his father. This wasn't the case in earlier years, especially in the later years. In addition, when they would sing the Nagunim, the songs, on Rosh Hashanah and other special times, of all the Rabbeim, the last song would be, would be the Rebbe's father's nigan, the Hakafas nigan. So you see that the Rebbe attributed, you could say it's a matter of kibudav, honoring his father, but he did include him in that order. So Chaz Rashaam, there are only seven Rabbeim in Chabad. That's not the question here. But nevertheless, there's some value to that. So it wasn't just the Rebbe's father, and we're honoring the Rebbe's father. So the Rebbe's father clearly captured the ideas of Chassidus in his Sfarim. Every Shabbos, the Rebbe would explain from uh, back in the 60s, when the, when the manuscripts were first published of the Rebbe's father's writings, which are fascinating in their, uh, their approach. 
And you could see they're specifically not written like a Maimach Siddhis with a Dibra Maskal. They're commentary on Zoyar, on Tanya, on Geras Hachuvah, another part, another, another, another uh, sections of the Tate, including verses and many letters of the Rebbe's father. The Rebbe would begin to explain every Shabbos. He explained the section that was connected either to the Zoyar. First the Rebbe started in the Geras Hachuvah, then on Tanya. And the Rebbe went through it each week. And you see again the value of all of that. So Chofov is, number one, a lesson about honoring a father. That's an obvious lesson. But it's even deeper than that, because the Rebbe's father was unique in, in, in focusing, we can call the Kabbalah within Chassidus Chabad. Now we know that Torah is all, is Eskalus, is Pshat, Remez, Drusad, the literal, the allegorical, there's the homiletic, the Talmudic, and there's ultimately Sod, the esoteric. Chassidus is Yechideh, as the Rebbe explains in the famous Kuntus and Yonashul Teres HaChsidus that the Rebbe delivered on Yutas Kislev Tovshin Chavov, Yechideh, the fifth dimension, and he explains there with Moida'ani as an example, how that enlightens and that enhances each of the four interpretations of the Torah. So when you talk about Rabbi Levi Yitzchok, obviously a Chosed Chabad, but you could say it's the Soid, the Chaye within Yechideh, if you wish, the Kabbalah within the Chsidis. So even though he brings plenty of chassidus, and he once said that everything in his, in his, in the, in his commentary is all based on the Kutateta, and you could see it, but it still has that focus on the Kabbalistic dimension of it. And as the Rebbe's father writes to, his, to the Rebbe, that remember, whenever you explain an idea, always connect it to its Kabbalistic roots, because it makes it then kaftev eferach, it creates a very then a crystallized picture, a beautiful picture, an image, because you have the whole picture. Not just, the, not just the, the nigla, the Talmudic part of it, but also the Kabbalistic roots in the Svidus and the Elam Esalyenim. So that is one of the major contributions of Rabbi Yitzchak. Also his style, you can see, the Rebbe has similar style in many areas, connecting everything to the name of the person who said the particular statement in the Talmud or the Medrash or in the Zohar, as, as well as the emphasis on the details, the number of something, the... the the name of this town, things that you don't find necessarily in other places, even though everybody obviously understands that every detail in Torah is precise. But I believe Yitzhak excelled in creating that connection. And, he, and indeed, Kaftar Vafedach, how a story was, how the, um, our message was completely enhanced when you understood all the details within it all. He also, you find in Rabbi Yitzhak another aspect, which is a tremendous lesson, is how he saw godliness everywhere. Now, of course, every tzaddik does that, but especially he suffered greatly. Talk about suffering. So it's appropriate that his chafav, which is, again, the consolation, the time of consolation after suffering. So you can see that, especially in his Rashima, in his Rashima, in his manuscript that he wrote, and it's printed in, in, in his svarim, where he writes about the details of his life, that his name is Levi Yitzchok, and Levi and Yitzchok are both gvura, severity, and indeed, he, he suffered greatly in his life. And he describes in detail every city where he sat in prison, how many days he sat in prison, how many uh, prisons he was in, and all indicating the gvura of God that he experienced through all of this. So though he suffered greatly, and we know this, when the first pictures arri- picture arrived of Rabbi Yitzhak, the Rebbe even wrote on the back of the picture, is this my father? Because he didn't recognize him because of his suffering. So it, it literally affected his appearance. Later, we discovered another picture, which is when he's younger, also when he's arrested. So it's, a, it's also a picture that's quite intense. 
but it's a picture before when he began his uh, his exile. So with all, with, so you see that even in all that suffering, where did he find? He found hein hein God's hand. Where in the darkest of the dark. It's a lesson in not just in composure and a lesson of focus, but just the the idea that wherever he was, even in the deepest darkness, it was all godliness that he saw. In this case, it was sadly through Gvura. And as he concludes in that Rishima, in that, in that document, he includes that he should be freed and redeemed and be reunited with his family. Well, he wasn't until Mashiach comes, he still wasn't reunited. And yes, he passed away in Golis, and his, and his place of rest is in Almadha, in Kazakhstan. I Last year, I had the privilege to travel there. So I saw it firsthand, where for God-forsaken place, but this is where he is, and every year now people go to honor, and it's a, um, so the schus of this yard site, Chofov is worth it talking about this, learning something from his Torah, and obviously um, doing something in his honor as the father of the Rebbe, and of course the schus of his, in his own right, the Rebbe writes, it's his schus, the Rebbe's schus, to remind people to do something in honor of Chofov, to learn something, to give stock in his honor, and so on. So that's Chofov, and I want to read a few questions that people had asked me about this. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your weekly broadcasts, which personify Chabad Ashkofa to the daily conduct of so many people each week. Emir Hashem, please God, I'm planning to make a trip to Almaty. Today it's called Almaty. They made it short, but it's Almata is the full name, the way it was. So I'm planning to make a trip to Almaty next week for Chafav with a growing large pilgrimage of Chassidim. I was taught as a bocher as a student, by my mashpim, by my mentors in Chabad, that we only write pans. A pan is a pidyan nefesh. When you write a note, when you go to the oil, you write your requests, you ask the Rebbe to intervene, intercede on our behalf. So he says, we only write pans and bracha letters to the official rabbeim of Chabad. So number one, can you please explain why we only write such letters to the Chabad rabbeim and not other tzaddikim? Number two, is the Rebbe's father, Oliver Sholm, an exception to this exclusive rule? I would appreciate it if you could share this general guidance on what is appropriate conduct and the proper mindset for a Chabad Chassid going to Almaty. Is the point to daven to Hashem in the holy place of a tzaddik on his yard site, or is it similar to going to the OL and, and we should besiege the holy tzaddik? Kind of the idea that Hashem may not heed to my requests, but he would heed to the request of Rabbi Levi Yitzchok if he would daven on my behalf. Thank you in advance for your guidance and for making Siddhis so understandable and practical. So, <clears throat> the idea of a Rebbe is there's one Rebbe. You have one Rebbe. So when you write to your Rebbe, and you, whether it was a Rebbe when you go into Yechidus and you wrote a pan, or on the oil, it's an exclusive relationship. So this doesn't take away from the greatness of other tzaddikim. But this is your Rebbe. It's like the famous story brought in the Kutit de Burim that one of the chassidim, the Alter Rebbe, was approached by another Helikid, a fine Rid, who said, come to me and I'll teach you a new derech, a new approach in Avedis Hashem. And he respectfully, respectfully declined. And the, the, that Rebbe said to him, why, you don't accept me as a Rebbe? And you're, you're a chassid? He said, you're a Rebbe you are, but not mine. A chassid I am, but not yours. Pantapan, he said it in Ukrainian. This doesn't take away, it's that focus. 
It's not like you run to one Rebbe to the next. This is my, I don't want to even use the word loyalty. It's not really loyalty. This is my connection. This is my tzinner. This is my channel, so to speak. The Moshe Rabbeinu of the generation. That still doesn't mean there was each, each, nos, each tribe, each shevet had also a nasi, even the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. So that's the general gist of it and why the pan is exclusive in that way. However, when people go to the Kaisal, they write a note. They go to the Marasamach Pela. They go to other tzaddikim. Whether you call it a pan, you write pidya nefesh, or you don't, that's already a matter of choice. I don't know if it's something that a person can't write a pan. As far as Ablevi Yitzchak goes, the question is asked. Some people say write it. Some people don't write it. Some people write a note. They don't write the word pan. I think it's, that's more of a personal choice. I don't know if there's a black and white rule. As far as the purpose of going, is a tzaddik. That, that alone is already a purpose. Again, to call him a Rebbe, we don't call him a Rebbe, but to say he's a tzaddik, he's for sure a tzaddik. And a person who suffered, and a person who passed away due to his mysterious nefesh for Yiddishkeit, and especially being the Rebbe's father, all this is a good reason. Yes, we never pray to the tzaddik, even to a Rebbe. We're always praying to God, but they can intercede on our behalf. So essentially, that's the attitude. And I don't know if you need to go dig deep into this. Going to the Rebbe's father's um, yard site, Use the time well, daven well, all from the heart. Hashem understands. And uh, you don't have to necessarily have it all figured out scientifically exactly what the details and what works. We don't know the, the dynamics. Call the Poshet Mailov Just be honest, Tmimus, a certain sincerity. That's all that's really needed. Okay. So we covered Chafov. Let's now go to the next part, we're going to talk, what is expected of us during the second half of Av? So I have a few questions that were a follow-up to the 15th of Av, Chamesh Osibov, but also in general, this period in time, and interesting questions came in, so, as, and I always appreciate it, because these questions are generated by you, and I find that to be the most meaningful questions, because they're not just theoretical, they're actual questions that people like yourself are asking, and this has been a very, for me, extremely enriching and empowering um, nine years since we began My Life Chassidah Supplied, especially knowing that's a true dialogue. And even though we're using technology, we're not sitting in person, but I feel like it's in person. I hear your questions. Some of them are heart-wrenching. Some are be- they're all beautiful. They're all powerful. Some are heart-wrenching. Some are very uplifting. Each one expressing a person's, people's hearts and soul and their, their, and their, uh, and their, and their challenges and issues. As someone wrote to me, a rabbi, a pretty prominent rabbi, he said to me, I don't know if I always, I, I, I don't know all the answers that you give. And I see them, some of them are excellent, the ones I've heard. But the mere fact, just the mere fact that you have a platform where people feel free, and they have the license, and they have the, given the dignity to ask questions is already extremely valuable. So, so this period in time. So this is a combination of post 15th of all, plus other questions related to that. So let's go through a bunch of them. So here we go. We spoke about this period as being rebuilding and reconciling that comes after the destruction, the building, the light that comes from the darkness. So that's a general theme. But to break it a little further, someone asked the question, why did they break the axe? After finishing cutting the wood on the 15th of Av, it seems like a wasteful baltashchis. 
So he's referring to the Gemara, the end of Tainus, after it says that there were no Yomim Tevim, Yom Tevim there were no holidays in Israel like 15th of Av and Yom Kippur. So the Gemara asks, why? What happened on the 15th of Av? And there are many different reasons given, which are all different reasons that the, that the sages each heard from their teachers, so they're all correct. So one of them was, it's called Yem Taber Magal, the day that the axe was broken, because on the 15th of Av is when in Israel, the nights begin to get longer. The summer months, of course, the sun is shining for a longer period of time, and therefore it dries out the wood, so the wood can be in a perfect state to be used in the Holy Temple. But once the nights begin to get longer, the sun is not shining as long, so the wood can become, remain moist, and then worms are there, and the wood is not perfect for the temple. So to, to symbolize that, they broke the axe that would, um, that would cut down, to chop down the wood, that chopped down the, the trees that were used for these etzim. So that period ended that they didn't chop any new wood, and they would use the wood that they stored up. So, he's asked, so this question is asking, why would you have to break the axe? Stop cutting the wood. If there was nothing wrong with the axe, they should have put it in the garage and stored it for use the following year. I don't know if there were garages then, but yes, I understand the question. It's a good question. Baltashkis means not to do something for waste. Why do you have to break the axe? So I looked around in commentaries. I didn't find an answer. That doesn't mean there isn't one in the commentaries. If somebody knows of an answer, please share it with me and I'll share it with the public. What comes to mind is that very axe, the idea, an axe, even though it can be used for good purposes like here, chopping wood, but an axe is something that is considered to be destructive, which is why you can't bring a basil, you can't bring things made of metal in the base of Mikdash because metal is used for weapons. It's a form of a weapon. So though it's true, it could be used, like in this case, for the wood, so it could be there was also a symbolic element that it wasn't just, okay, we can't, we, we, don't, we can't use the wood anymore because the wood may, may not be that dry. That there was also an element of there's a period in time when you chop the wood, there's a time when the axe has to be broken. And we look at the Rebbe's talks about the connection between the reasons the 15th of Av is such a holiday, you see one central theme. It's all about unity. Ardus. Remember, the, the temple was destroyed because of sinaschinam, divisiveness. Disunity, discord. So it makes sense that the 15th of Av symbolizes unity. And even according to Kabbalah and is the union between the sun and the moon, Yichud Shimshavasira, the full moon, after Tishabov, which symbolizes Malchus, the connection of Malchus and Knesset Yisrael with its source. Again, a form of unity. When, when the Shimshavasira, the sun and the moon, Zah and Malchus, the Mashpi and Makabal, are separate from each other, that's the opposite of unity. So we see symbolic as unity. An axe, by definition, means to cut, to chop something down has an element, a certain symbolism of breaking something. The famous story with Al Tarebe, the Al Tarebe was given by someone as a gift, a, um, a uh, tobacco box, a snuff box, yeah, like a shmek tabak. Obviously, he, was, he wasn't going to use it. He actually said that that Sadas, four of the five senses were contaminated. The only one that wasn't was smell, touch, taste. Sight and sound, but not smell. So he wanted now also pollute smell. So he didn't use it. But what did he do? He removed the hinge, 
from the box, and he would use the cover as a mirror to see whether his tefillin was straight. And the Tzemach Sadiqah said, because Bamzeidin is going shaykh is brechen. My grandfather didn't break anything. So he didn't break it, he removed the hinge. And he used it, even though he wouldn't use it as a snuff box, he used it for a positive purpose. So you see anything that's called breaking, even though it may have a good intention, is something that has also another side to it. That would be one way I would explain this, uh, this element of why they actually broke the axe. Okay, next question. Another one of the events that happened after, on the 15th of Av that symbolizes its holiday was that the tribe of Binyamin, they were excommunicated, basically. What does that mean? That after what they did, they did a terrible, there was a terrible crime that they perpetrated against a woman that was violated. So the other tribes took an oath that they would no longer allow their daughters to marry into the tribe of Binyamin. This oath was absolved on the 15th of Av. So, so here's the question. Why was the tribe of Benjamin allowed to rejoin Klal Yisrael, the community, on the 15th of Av? They violated and murdered a woman. Instead of turning over the perpetrators to justice, the leaders, the entire tribe of Benjamin, the, the, the leaders of Benjamin decided to fight a war against the other 11 tribes to protect their perpetrators, the perpetrators. That makes the entire tribe of Benjamin a criminal tribe. We don't need them and their criminals to be part of the community of the Jewish community. We are better off without them. So why now were they permitted to enter, re-enter the community? Where's the justice here? How can we take the laws of Torah seriously, specifically the law that says, thou shalt not murder, if Benjamin and their criminals were just forgiven and allowed to rejoin the community? And the entire saga of their heinous, crime, heinous, crime, heinous crimes was whitewashed as if it didn't happen. May Hashem bless that we can have true justice in the world, not temporary justice as in Benjamin is being kicked out. Oh, okay, now Benjamin is led back in. What the tribe of Benjamin did to protect the perpetrators and wage war on the victims is the same thing that sadly happens in our community when children are molested and the rabbis cover it up to protect the perpetrators and then go and attack and besmirch the victims and their families. It was wrong 3,000 years ago and it's still wrong today. It's lucky for them that today most of us don't know our tribe of origin. If we did know, I would boycott Benjamin and not support their businesses and I wouldn't let my daughters marry any of their criminals. Okay, I appreciate your uh, passion, but you know something? And I'm not taking away from the anger and the lesson we learned. You see, the Jewish people did not let their daughters marry Benjamin. So it's not like they covered, they, that they, they actually did protest. And that's what we need to acknowledge. However, does that mean that the generations later are also culpable? So even if you have a person who did, let's just say, let's talk in contemporary terms, that was a molester and hurt people. Is his or her children and grandchildren also guilty? Is this a generational thing? And that's indeed the explanation. Because how did they absolve the oath? So if you look in the, you look in the Gemara, you look in the commentaries, it's very simple. It's because they took an oath upon themselves that we would not allow our daughters to marry Benjamin. But that didn't mean the next generation. And it makes total sense because it's not a generational thing. You don't have collective, um, you don't have guilt by association. So while on one hand, the lesson is a tremendous lesson we learn that not to be silent in the face of a crime and the Jewish people stood up and to the point they would not allow their children, their daughters to marry into Benjamin. But that also means it's done with discretion. It's not just some blanket statement out of anger. 
when the time comes and the people who the perpetrators passed away, their children and grandchildren are not necessarily guilty. So therefore, the oath was absolved. So the 15th of Av, again, symbolizes unity, a reunion with Benjamin, as other events that happen on the 15th of Av. So I would think that you'd also appreciate the second half of it. So it's not something that you could say, no, no, thousands of years later, no, Benjamin does not have to be punished. They, 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 they got there with their due. And it was not a matter of, okay, now we forgive the perpetrators. Now we move on, the next generations. And I think every family that may have, God forbid, somebody in their family that did something really wrong. So once there's accountability, if it's a cover-up and it continues to be a cover-up from the beginning, it's another story. Here there wasn't. You see clearly it was a big event to reconnect with Benjamin, to, re-allow, to allow them to re-enter and, re- and, and engage with the community, especially in the context of marriage. And I think it's a beautiful way of looking at it. We don't cause that their daughters for all generations should be off limits. Why shouldn't they have the right to be able to marry into any tribe and be connected with their brethren, their, uh, the brothers and sisters of other tribes within Israel? Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, now that Tisha B'Av is over and everyone agrees it is the saddest holiday in our calendar, I would like to ask you, which is the happiest day in our calendar? The Talmud in Tainus says, that's the Gemara in the Tainus we've been citing, that there were no holidays as great as the 15th of Av and Yom Kippur. In other places, it says Yom Kippur is Kippurim, like Purim. And it's a small hint of the great joy we feel on Purim. We're also taught, the sages say, nobody would understand the meaning of pure joy unless they witness the Simchas Besasheva, the joy when they, the, of the water, the drawing of the water and the water pouring festival in the Beis Amigdash in the Holy Temple, which we celebrate on Sukkot. So which is it? Which is the happiest day of our, on our calendar? If I get to vote, I would vote for Simchas Torah. But it's based on my personal feeling, and I don't have a source to back it up. So Rabbi Jacobson, which day do you think it is? And regardless of which holiday it is, I want to bless our community that we should have simchas and great joy every day of the year, especially the biggest simcha of history, which will be the revelation of Mashiach. Amen. Okay, interesting question. What comes to mind immediately is this. I remember the Rebbe a number of times would ask the question, that when you learn Chassidus, you learn the Maimorim of Pesach, it tells you how Pesach is the greatest day of the year, the greatest holiday. When you learn the Maimorim of Shavuos, Shavuos is the greatest holiday. When you learn the Maimorim of Sukkot, Sukkot is the greatest holiday. And the Rebbe said, which one is it? And the answer is, everything in its time is the Shar, the gate, through which other mitzvahs travel. It's called the Mitzvah Dahav Zoyer Beit Fei. The Gemara talks about a mitzvah that you're especially careful what does that mean, that the other mitzvahs are not? But no, that's your mitzvah, whatever reason. And I say, Seichel keinu b'seidah secha. We say at the end of Shemineser. Give us our part in Teda. Though the Teda is for everyone, and everyone has a part in all the Teda, but still there's the parts of Teda that relate to your Nesham. Same thing with mitzvahs, the same thing. So each holiday is the Shar. So on Pesach, the qualities of Shavuos, the qualities of Sukkot, all travel through Pesach. So I would say the same thing. There are different names, there are different holidays that are called Great Simcha. You mentioned Purim, Purim in Adela In that sense, Simcha's Teda, the greatest Simcha of all. And sometimes explained because it comes after Yom Kippur, and it's a Simcha that came from the bottom up, meaning 
It's not a simcha pita. It's not written in the written Torah, not in the oral Torah. It's from the, the Jews themselves um, created, essentially generated it and, and, and that minig of simcha's Torah. So it has that power. So I would say each one has a certain element of great simcha. Then there's lo yihoi yom tevin the chazal say it. That there were no holidays like Chamisha Osebov and Yom Kippur. So you have to say each one has a unique simcha and each one in its own way. When it comes to Yom Tevin Yisrael, that can be interpreted, is it a joy thing or is it a Yom thing? That's already a discussion. And the Gemara indeed talks about it. And according to that Rizal, the main reason is because it comes after the darkness of Tisha that's something, even though Purim also came after the Napachu, transformation from a, a terrible gzeda that could have created a genocide of all the Jewish people, a noshim, noshim, v'taf, but still there's something about Tubov which is even deeper, chamisha sabov, because it comes after Tishabov. So I, my answer would be I don't have a black and white and say this is it. I don't think it's a popularity contest. I think each one has its particular message, and thank God we have more than one. And we should only have, as you, as, as, you, as you concluded, only simchas to celebrate, and ultimately the greatest celebration with the Gula Amitiz Vashlem, was Simcha Salem Al Reisham. But I, I, I enjoyed the question, and I would love to hear if anybody has any additional things. I always find that uh, your comments are very valuable, so please don't hesitate. And here's a good opportunity. Go to chsidasupply.com. There's a forum there where you could submit any question, comment, completely anonymously, and I'd love to hear from you if anybody wants to weigh in on this question. Okay. <clears throat> Every year, we are reminded that during the month of Elul, the king is in the field, and we should take advantage of that opportunity to meet Hashem and discuss our needs for the coming year and make positive resolutions. But there are still two weeks left in the month of Menachem Ov. What can we do during the happy two weeks finale, finale of the month of Ov? to get a head start in our Veda for Elul. If someone knew the king would be at a certain place on the first of Elul, they, would, they could technically go to that place earlier and wait and be the first one to greet the king when he arrives. Okay, so this is very much in the spirit of what we've been talking about. Remember when Chassidus talks about, you read that Sheyda Chaliyah, that a descent is for the purpose of an ascent, an elevation that comes afterwards, so there's a particular emphasis, the Rebbe emphasizes this in a number of places. It's not just that this descent is going to lead to an aliyah, it's actually part of the aliyah. When you raise a building with a Z, you raise a building in order to build a bigger, a greater building, the raising is part of the building. Just at this point, you have to take down the older building in order to bring a bigger one. So if you think of it that way, of is actually the forces that give birth to Elul. And indeed, we mentioned Ov is the, the, the mazel. The sign of Ov is Aryeh, Leo, the lion. Aryeh is a, an acronym, as the Shalom writes in some Tzedek sites. The Rebbe brings it as well. Elul, it's an acronym, Aryeh, Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yema Kippurim, Hishayin So Elul and the Melech Basod and the Gilui of Yud Gimel Midas Harachimim, the compassion the divine attribute, the 13 divine attributes of compassion that's revealed in El and accelerates our Shoshana, especially Yom Kippur, is all born from Aryeh. As we discussed earlier, Moshe Rabbeinu gained forgiveness on Yom Kippur, but it didn't begin on Yom Kippur. He began the process actually on the 17th of Tammuz. 
It took 80 days. So essentially, what do we do now? We have to take any of the negatives and look in, and start the soul searching, even though El is the real time of Yechidosh HaCheshben, where we start the accountability for the past year. But that doesn't mean you, we don't have accountability right now. Now is a good time to say, what caused the destruction? What am I doing to counter the forces of sinas chinam in my life or my community? The forces that divide us, the arguments, the petty arguments, the natural petty arguments, things that we can do to start repairing the rifts. So when it comes El, we're well prepared, and then El will continue the preparation to the new year. So indeed, we are now actually in that transition from the darkness of the beginning part of, of that leads to Rosh Chodesh El, but it's still called Yemei Kas, because Hashem did not yet respond positively to Moshe. But it's still necessary to pray. And then comes Rosh Chodesh El, and that's when the revelations start beginning. And that's why Melech Besada, the king in the field, we say on El, we don't say it on Ov. But you're absolutely correct. The better you prepare, the greater it is. The Rebbe brings that Chafav, actually, is 40 days before Rosh Hashanah. And 40 days before a child is born, in this case the world is born, they already announce who he's going to marry. So there's something about Chafav, which is, is literally 10 days left from Chafav till the end of Av. So this period is all about that type of preparation to the birthing that will happen Rosh Hashanah and the 30 days prior to that, which is the month of Elul. And so basically, we know that Elul's focuses on the Torah, Vedic, Mils, Chasadim, all the acronyms of Elul, that they indicate the three pillars, cognitive, emotional, and behavioral conditioning, which is Torah, Vedic, Mils, Chasadim, and that, and, and also Tshuva and Geula. So there's five acronyms. So we could begin the process right now. No one tells us you can't. Chamesh Asabahavar also says in Svarim, is Gematchik Siva So even though the custom is to begin to start writing and wishing people a good year, a new year, but some have the custom to begin already from the 15th of Av. So you see from all that that the preparations are beginning. But everything is in stages. Okay. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for being here for us week after week with such care and wisdom. It's a healing and stabilizing thing amidst all the chaos. I'm writing today with a special request, quote unquote. It was a moving event for me, and I imagine for everyone, when earlier you sang a niggin right after Tishabov. Might you consider doing this thing, doing this again this year, hoping May God bless and keep you. <laughs> yeah, I've had many requests, to be very honest. I don't see myself as a singer, but I guess uh, it comes from the heart. It has some expression. So I will comply. At the end of this program, I'll, uh, I'll share a niggin um, that uh, hopefully <laughs> captures some of the sentiments of where we are today in the time of the year. And in general... You know, we live in a world where there's a lot of pain, a lot of loneliness, and we can all use uh, words from the heart that enter the heart, and especially a nigan that comes from the heart. So I will, I will, uh, I will respond. I will uh, um, comply to your request and the request of others as well. I'll do it at the end of the program. But thank you for that. 
continuing the theme of marriage, which is Tuba of, is when the Benoist Sin Yerushalayim, the daughters of Zion Yerushalayim, would go out and they would, they would essentially say, let us make a Shidduchim, a time of Shidduchim. And why? Because that's the whole point of 15th of Av, is the Yichud Shimshu Vesida of Chosen and Kala. So it's appropriate time in our personal lives. So here's a question regarding our marriage to God. One of the mitzvahs listed by the Rambam this week is that a man is not allowed to remarry a woman he divorced if she was married to another man after him. So just to specific, if a woman, if, if there was a divorce, God forbid, it's actually a mitzvah to be machzik grushose and remarry. Obviously, you want to do it the right way. But if the woman married another man, you're not allowed to. That's, so that's what it says. We are taught that Hashem observes all the mitzvahs He commands us. Since our relationship with Hashem is often described by Chazal as a marriage, by our sages as a marriage, and we are God's bride, should we be worried that if we turn away from Torah and mitzvahs and turn to idolatry, that Hashem won't be able to take us back because we have married, quote-unquote, someone else? Well, first of all, this is exactly what happened with the golden calf. They betrayed God and, and went off with another idol, with Elikim Achedim. And yet you see that God did take them back. That's Yom Kippur. Yom Chasenosi Zemat and Teira. That's the verse that's used after the second Luchis, the second uh, tablets. So clearly, how does that jive with this halacha? And in general, all the years in Golis, the answer is because we never took another husband. There may have been a concealment, there may have been a moment of folly, it may have been even deliberate, but it was never ultimately another husband. Which means even when they build the golden calf, they still remain loyal to God. And there are different explanations for that, that they had intention was, they thought Moshe wasn't coming back. I'm not justifying, we don't justify it. But it wasn't about betraying God completely. So we can't say they actually married somebody else. Because Afal Pishachati Yisrael who and Jews can never really, like it says, Nishta Eid Vil and Nishta Ken Zain Abgirisim Fanalakus. A Jew can't, can't and doesn't want to be t- torn away and, um, and, and, and from God, severed the relationship. So it always remains a connection, even in the worst times of Golas, especially when you take in consideration the Medrash, which I quoted last week, that Golas is compared to a Baal Shaholach Lemedina Sayam, that a wife, the Jewish people, when the destruction of the temple, the husband, God, the siluk hashchina, the concealment of the shechina, is a husband that went off to, to, foreign, to other lands. And when Mashiach comes and there'll be the reunion, Hashem himself will be surprised that the Jewish people did not go look for another husband. They did not look for another God. Does it mean that they were perfect? Does it mean that there were times they may have done things that were quite severe, like including idolatry? But still, they did not go and find another husband. So that would answer the question that you're asking. Since we're talking about Avis Yisrael, which is the counterforce and the antidote to divisiveness, so a question that came is, why isn't there almost, why isn't there almost any discussion about how to keep Mitzvah Avis Yisrael in the Shulchan Aruch? Nitili Shedayim is a Darabonon. Washing your hands is only from the rabbis. And has a few simonim a few sections in Shulchan Aruch on it, in the Code of Jewish Law. But, lo- but loving one's fellow, which is a klal godl, as Rabbi Akiva says, 
a fundamental principle and a, a clear directive for Haftarecha and Kola Kula Al Regalachas, as Hillel told the potential convert. Is the whole Tere. Has barely a sif, barely one little uh, reference, one, one short piece on it. Why isn't it more developed? Very good question. But you have a similar question, which is also about Chinuch. Is Chinuch a mitzvah in the Tere? And if it is, why is it more elaborate? We have Shenantim Levanecha. But still, the same idea, we have Derecheretz Kodma Lateira. So one of the explanations for that is that there are certain axioms that are so fundamental that they precede the Tera. You don't even need a mitzvah for it. There are opinions that a Muna, for having faith in God, is not a mitzvah. Why? Because it precedes a mitzvah. If a person doesn't have a Muna, he's not going to accept the mitzvah. So that means, first there's a Muna and Hashem, and therefore you accept the mitzvahs that Hashem gives you. Not all opinions agree. There are other opinions, but for different reasons. Because there's also an element of a mitzvah in it as well. The point is that there are certain givens that are, that are just, to be a mensch, it doesn't say in the Torah, be a mensch. It does say, Teshim Tiyu, don't be a novel, but it's just is not just implicit, it's the essence of everything. Now, I'm not saying this is a completely adequate answer because you also can say, Avas Hashem is a mitzvah. But nevertheless, it could be that elaboration is because that should be a given. And you don't need to necessarily have someone to write down all the details of it. In other words, the writing of the details is important when it's a mitzvah that could be optional. Maybe that's not the right word, not optional. But it's not as fundamental. So therefore you have to know all the laws of Shabbos, the laws of Kashrus, laws of Pesach. They're also fundamental, but they're not such an ikr shebi ikrim. Similarly, you could speak about Mashiach. In Shulchan Aruch, you don't talk about Mashiach altogether. The Rambam does because he brings halachas that even are not bizman azeh. The laws of Beis Hamikdash, the Trumis Hamaisis. But Mashiach is so fundamental. The belief that the God's purpose in this world will be realized. To the point that seven or six or seven of the Shemin the 18 blessings in Shemin are about Mashiach and Gula. And yet you don't see it in Shulchan Aruch. Because fundamentals like that are so fundamental, they in a way are beyond Shulchan Aruch, or they precede Shulchan Aruch even. That would be the way I would probably explain it. I can't say I've seen this explicit, but here's El Kosai. I'd love to invite you all to comment on this as well. Okay. There is a follow-up to questions that were asked in previous, and I'm going to use the next... While to just leave I want to just, I don't, I don't like things hanging, so I'm going to cover a few things from previous weeks. Let's start with Veschanon. I didn't have time last week, so since yesterday was Pasha Veschanon, Shabbos Nachmu, so I think it's still appropriate. So let me read a few questions on Veschanon, and I'll try to cover and fill in for things that were follow-ups, see how much we can get through here. Veschanon is Gematria 515, right? which is an allusion to the 515 prayer, different prayers, Moshe Rabbeinu said, to try to get God to change his mind and let him enter Israel. That's Veschanan, the prayer that Moshe, the 515 prayers. It's taught that Hashem asked him to please stop praying and not attempt to offer a 516th prayer. What is the significance of 515 versus 516? If Moshe was being punished for hitting the rock, 
Why not let him have the opportunity to do tshuva? Why would Hashem say, stop your prayers now and please evacuate the area? There were villains in the Talmud, such as Elizabeth and Derdaya, who did despicable things much worse than Moshe hitting a rock. And Elizabeth was able to have the chance to do tshuva before he died. Kalvachem and Moshe should have been given the chance. If somehow a 516th prayer is a point of no return in which once it's said, then Hashem must answer, why don't we publicly say 516 prayers as to why Hashem must fulfill His promises, uh, promises and send Mashiach in a revealed manner right now? And if Hashem tells us to please stop after the 515th prayer, we can defiantly disobey and say the 516th prayer anyways. The Rebbe told us in his famous speech of Chavches Nissen, the 28th of Nissen, and that was um, 29 years, uh, that was uh, 31 years ago, Tavshinun Aleph, that even if 10 people, that if even 10 people will be stubborn and do everything to bring Mashiach, then he will come. I commit to being stubborn and saying a 516th prayer, even if Hashem tells me to stop at 515. Okay. So first of all, the significance of Tov Kuf Tezvav is brought in different Svarim. And if you look in the Sikhs, especially in the later years, Tov Shinun Aleph, Tov Shinun, the Rebbe speaks about it. And that Tov Kuf Tezvav is, the different hints to it. One is that it's Tov Kuf Tezvav, the Tezvav represents Yud K. And Tov Kuf, which is 500, represents the different levels, the 500 years between heaven and heaven. So basically, it's really referring to spiritual levels. And each prayer represented another level of piercing heaven to indeed to have Moshe come into Eretz Yisrael. Why did Moshe want to go into Eretz Yisrael? The Gemara says, because he wanted, he wanted to enjoy its fruits. He wanted to have a sightseeing tour. No, God forbid. Because he knew that Eretz Yisrael is the Shlemus. That's the place where you can do Torah mitzvahs and connect to God in the most complete way. He also knew that if he goes into Eretz Yisrael, as Svarim bring, the Beis the, HaMikdash the, the would never be destroyed because Maisi Dei Moshe Nitzchim. So he understood the stakes. However, why couldn't he go into Eretz Yisrael? Because the Ebrister said they're not yet ready for the Geula. So the 515 prayers were necessary. And they weren't to waste, God forbid. Because if God didn't want him to pray, he could have said after the first prayer, don't ask me this. As exactly as you point out. Because he need to be mamshach, this 515 hamshachas with all the explanations in, in Veschanon, in the five Tavkuf Tezvav, because it achieved a certain level that paved the way and helps us do Aravedah to bring the Geula. So once Moshe reached that number, he accomplished something. After that, they wouldn't have make a, the prayers wouldn't have helped any further. So he achieved something with it. The consummation of it will be when Mashiach actually comes. But to say that Moshe's prayer was to waste, God forbid, in vain? No. And absolutely a person could do tshuva. And Moshe too. And you see alone from the story, hitting the rock, as you point out, relative to others, it's not even a big sin. It's not a sin at all. But relative to Moshe, it was something, it was enough to be a factor because it symbolized that you're not yet ready to transform the rock through words, which is going to be in the Gula Mitis Vashlema. It still needed striking in your mind. So there was still a tension between material existence, the rock, and what God wants, is one of the messages there. 
So of course a person can do tshuva, but you know, God has this final say. If he's not ready for the gula, we're not ready for the gula. Had Moshe gone to Yisrael, that would have been the gula. That's really what it was all about. Okay. As far as being stubborn, the Rebbe said absolutely those words, so go for it. <laughs> Hashem is not going to tell you to stop praying. So you can go and pray as much as you want to pray, 515, 516. That is def- definitely in our option. And I hope we don't need so many. And we can bring the ghoul even with less prayers because remember, at the end of the day, since Moshe Rabbeinu's times, we've said a lot more than 515 prayers. We've said more than 515,000 prayers. And more than 515 million prayers. So we've achieved more daiva hoiser. And the time has come, the hextet site, like the Rebbe says, that the Gula should already come in actuality into this world. Two more questions, a few more questions on, on Vashanan. We also know Vashanan is very fundamental, Pasha. You have Shema there, you have Yedaita Yem, you have Eneid Malvade, Eneid. So the question was, what does it mean in Shema when it says God is one? Hashem Echad. Does it mean there's only one God? Can it be misunderstood to mean that there are many gods, but God is number one and not number two or three, etc.? Or does it mean God is, in, is unity as in we are all united as one. Well, it's the latter. Chassidus explains Hashem Echad is not just the negation of duality and shituf, that there's a partner, but that God is, there's only one reality, not just that God is one. There's only one reality, and God permeates all of that reality. That's the, the bottom line. So Hashem Echad has a lot, that's why Agdus Hashem is so fundamental in Chassidus, all talks about how to experience and how to be miyachad Hashem to find God's one unity in everything in existence. That's why Echad is a Rosh Tevis, Aleph, Alufish Shalelam, the master of the universe. Ches is seven heavens and earth, eight. And Dalit is a Dalit Ruch the four directions, east, west, north, and south. That all the details are permeated with the Achdus Hashem, Echad. That's the brief answer. And everything we do is to reveal the divine unity in this fragmented and disjointed world. If someone is far away and doesn't have access to a pair of tefillin, can they tie a mezuzah? Because in Shema we also talk about mezuzah and tefillin, tefillin and mezuzah. So someone's asking, if someone's far away and doesn't have access to a pair of tefillin, can they tie a mezuzah on their head and arm to fulfill the spirit of the mitzvah? Well, this is actually a halacha question you have to ask a rabbi. I do not believe you can do that. I've never seen that. Tefillin is a particular mitzvah, mezuzah is another mitzvah. Indeed, they both have parchment, they both have shema in them, but tefillin has other parshas as well, and it has to also be structured like tefillin. So my, my knee-jerk reaction, no, in, that's not the case, but I don't want to be a poisek here. You should ask a rabbi that question. Are tefillin and mezuzah essentially the same thing with the same Torah verses written inside them, but one you wear on your head and arm, and the other you wear on the doorpost of your house? Like I just said, no. They have... One Pasha Shema, but there's also there's other Pashas in the film that are not in the Mezuzah. Mezuzah only has one Pasha, the Shema. So it's absolutely not the case, but and they have different roles and different mitzvahs. We see that in the Shema. And then there's which is film. Okay. This is a follow-up question about think good and it will be good. Also fitting to our time. So this is specifically about an issue around fertility. 
Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I want to follow up on an anonymous letter I sent you which you read on your Sunday night program. This was a few weeks ago. About fertility issues and the concept of tragut vizangut, which means think good and will be good, and thinking, positive, and thinking positively in order to draw down blessings that can help us succeed as we consult with the best doctors in the field and choose the best interventions that modern science offers. So as we discussed, it's a combination of efforts that we do while also thinking good and it'll be good, but we have to also make our effort. God sends his blessings in our actions, in our efforts, our ishtadlus. Without divulging any specific medical information that my wife and I prefer to keep private, I can say that there were two, di- there were two different medical problems. My wife and I have both committed to being positive that we will succeed and that we will do what the doctors say and Hashem's blessings will help us succeed. Just today we got results of a series of tests and thank God one of the two medical problems is now resolved which gives us an even greater chance at a successful healthy pregnancy. Good to hear. We believe this good news is a direct result of God's blessings due to our positive attitude and trust in God. We still have much more to do until we receive the ultimate good news of a healthy pregnancy but we believe the second medical issue will be resolved soon with God's blessings and in the next few months we will have more good news to share. Rabbi Jacobson, I want to thank you for your Sunday night program, which I watch regularly. You have helped me get a deeper understanding of many concepts of Torah and Chassidus, and I finally understand the concept of, of think good and it will be good, and I am seeing it come into fruition. A few weeks ago, we read the story of the Miraglim. Those are the scouts that Moshe sent to check out Israel. Now I can understand that by their negative attitudes, by saying we can't conquer this land that consumes its inhabitants, they were doing the opposite of Trachgut Vedzangut. And that's why they and those listening to them were unsuccessful and not able to enter Israel. You also mentioned on your program that sometimes when medical issues arise, it can cause tensions between spouses or a person feeling inadequate, even if a spouse never did or said anything accusatory to make them feel inadequate. Thankfully, my wife and I are on the same page, and we both have the same goals, and we don't have any tensions. We both want to make the world a better place, and one of the many ways we can do it is by having a child and educating them in ways of Torah and Chassidus, so that they can also be excited to bring an increase in goodness and kindness into the world. I, don't, I love my wife, and I don't think any less of her as a person because she has a medical issue. On the contrary, I appreciate her as a person even more because she is using her inner strength to go through many different medical procedures, procedures, some of which are uncomfortable and painful. Also, we often watch your Sunday program together, and when she realized I took the time to write you a letter, she told me she appreciated it and, made her, and it made her feel loved and cared about. I want to conclude with the following blessing to the community. May Hashem bless every couple to have the opportunity to have healthy children and abundant parnasa. May anyone with a medical issue be blessed by Hashem and may they find the right doctor at the right time and be healed. Although everything is ultimately God's decision, the positive attitude certainly helps and gives us a better chance at success. If we compare it to a football game, where two teams have an equal amount of great athletes, and one team comes onto the field united with a positive attitude, that, are, that is the best 
That, that is the best way to ensure that we will win. And the other team walks onto the and, and we are sure that we will win. And the other team walks onto the field downtrodden with a negative attitude that says we don't think our coach has a good strategy. We have injuries and there's no way we can win the game. Although there are no guarantees who will win, it makes logical sense that the team united with the positive attitude has better odds. May Hashem bless us all that we have the opportunity to choose to be on the positive team and succeed and conquer and defeat any challenges. Okay. Speaks for itself. Thank you very much for that. I think I may have read two letters. I'm not positive, to be honest. They just followed one and the other. Okay. Is there a guide, the next follow-up question, for when and how we are allowed and supposed to complain and ask for things we need? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, in the past few episodes you alluded to situations in the Torah where in order to demonstrate a partnership we have with Hashem, sometimes things we need are withheld until we first ask Hashem for it. But I have a problem with this because the Torah is very inconsistent, seemingly, in many of these stories. Sometimes when everyone in the desert was thirsty and complained they needed water, Hashem responds with anger and indignation, saying, how dare you not have a munah, faith in me, that I'll find water for you in the desert. For complaining, I will punish you and send snakes to bite you. Other times when the daughters of Slavchad, for example, complained, they didn't even receive, that they didn't receive a fair inheritance. Hashem is okay. Oh, Hashem okays it and let's fix the problem and give them an inheritance. I can cite many more examples of how sometimes Hashem responds kindly and generously and other times he responds with anger and punishment because, well, his ego was hurt, so to speak. When hungry and thirsty people ask for food and water. But I'm sure you get the point. My question is, is there a guide for when and how we are allowed and supposed to complain and ask for things we need? For example, during the pandemic, my business has been struggling and I'm just barely able to pay my bills. I want to dive in that Hashem should send me more parnasa, but will Hashem respond kindly or send snakes to bite me? Okay, very good question. The answer is, generally, it all comes down to intention. A person who truly and sincerely cries out to God like you cry out to a father, Hashem will always accept those prayers. If it's coming from however, a place of someone's inciting, whether it's a dosen and a viram, who has negative intentions, you can understand they're not coming with just a heartfelt cry that we need water or, or, or food or, or meat or whatever it may be. That would make a big difference. It would be like the difference if a child comes to you and you know they're coming with a very sincere cry or you see they're being manipulative or they have other intentions. That's just a general difference. But overall, we have to always ask. That's what tefillah is. Tefillah in Atayra, actually, prayer, according to Atayra, is bakosha strachav. When you need something, cry out. Hashem didn't say keep it to yourself. While we also make ishtadlus like we spoke before, we make effort, we cry out. So we never hesitate from crying out. Let's make that clear. The cases where Hashem got angry, so to speak, was because there were other intentions in mind. And even there... We also see God complied. So the point is, Tfil is always an avenue to take. Is there a guide? The guide is, be sincere, be honest, you need something, cry out for it. Don't hesitate. If you can do something in addition to prayer, whether you need to go to a doctor, or need a mashpia mentor, 
or do something that someone says, what are you just crying to God? Do something about it. Obviously, you have to also couple the prayer together with action. Yaakov Avinu prayed to God, but he also prepared a bribe and he prepared for war when he came to confront uh, uh, his brother Esau. So that's the general response to that. Okay. I'll conclude with two more follow-ups. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. Agutavach, aguladikavach. In last week's biblical characters decoded on David, so I do Sunday, 3 p.m., New York time, Eastern Daylight time, a new program that called Biblical Characters Decoded. It's on, you can find it on our website. You go to MeaningfulLife.com, you'll see the schedule. So this person is referring to one I did on David. You gave over the brilliant teaching that though David went to war, he was not a warrior. In other words, even though we may have to exercise a media that does not come naturally to us, it is ultimately consistent with our essence. We, the, we see this, for example, in the previous episode in the series on Pinchas. Pinchas is at his essence a man of peace, not despite, but because of his slaying of Zimri and Kuzbi. This understanding gives rise to the question of why David was not permitted to build the Beis Amigdash, when although he had blood on his hands, his hands were not his essence. He was a psalmist, as I explained. Were not all David's tears, struggles, and battles given to him by Hashem to let his soul shine forth as the sweet singer of Israel? The violent acts of Pinchas, David, and Hashem himself are not in essence who they are. Thank you for explaining why this parallel between Pinchas and David presents as a paradox. So the brief answer is, as I discussed, that's correct. No one says that David was a sinner because he went to war. As a matter of fact, he prepared the ground for Shleim HaMelech to build the Beis Amigdash. But the bottom line is, like we spoke before about the axe, blood was shed. And blood is always a negative element to it. Even if it has justification and even if it was God commanded, a Beis Amigdash is not a place of death. It's a place of life. So that was the price that he paid. He was also an Imz Midas Yisrael, and his essence was, as I discussed then, Araya. Dovet Araya, like Moshe. He was a shepherd. That was his whole role. He was Malchus, Bittel. As the Tzemach based on the Alter Rebbe's Maimer, Mitzvah, Mine, Melech, and Derech, Mitzvah, explains. He was a man of humility. But bottom line is, he did have blood. And the bottom line is, the Beis Amigdash would be through his son. And it's his son. Remember, Shleim HaMelech is carrying Tovid HaMelech to the next generation. So that's the Nekudah here, the point. So even though he, uh, he, he was who he was, and his essence was not being a warrior, but that was his Mesiris Nefesh in a way. Okay, and finally, Bainini follow-up. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. This is, follow-up. this is a follow-up comment to the question I asked you. I asked you, you so kindly answered in one of the previous weeks, about the Bainini's never-ending battle between the animal and the divine souls. My question was, asking, was asked in the context of inner peace. I want to say that in your class on biblical characters, Dakota David, David, you gave a comprehensive explanation of the soul's wholeness, or shlemus, in relation to the two parts of the souls, animal and divine. And divine. To my mind, you are presenting a way to achieve inner peace, and that is for us to go dig to go deeper, dig deeper, to access the place, that place in our soul where there's no division and separation. Thank you for demonstrating how the Baini can achieve inner peace in the face of his or, da- uh, his or her daily and lifelong struggles between the different parts of ourselves. Okay, correct. 
So in Tanya, he talks about the battle, but ultimately the battle will be resolved, especially when Mashiach comes. Okay, so with that, we conclude. But as I said, I said I would conclude, as some have asked me, and I'll start with Anigan. So coming from Tishabov, where we experience the anguish of every, every broken heart and every soul that struggles in this world, we come to the rebuilding. And Anigan is always a way that captures both elements, both sometimes the sadness of life, the existential loneliness, the existential um, isolation, like Eicha Yosva Badad, but also the, the deeper joy that we can access deeper parts of our soul and connect to a higher level. So really all Chassidosh and Nagunim, especially Chabad Chassidosh and Nagunim, really capture this theme. And many of them are like a dialogue even between you and your soul, between you and God. So it's just a nigun that comes to mind. I remember hearing from Chassidim who would sing Nagunim by the Fabrengs, start the Nagunim by the Rebbe, that in the early years this nigun was sung and every time they sang it, the Rebbe would cry, sometimes uncontrollably. So they stopped singing the nigun. So you often wonder what this nigun elicited in the Rebbe. And that's what come to, came to mind. So let me sing the nigun and uh, hopefully do some just, justice to it. And with that, we'll conclude, and then I'll say my final remarks about this program. Oh, you know, 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 oh,
Oy nanay 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 Oy dedeyano Riyay nanay nanay Oy nanay 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 Oy nanay nanay So with that we conclude this episode 414 of My Life Scissors Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a very blessed week, a week of Yehovah, Yom HaMelo, L'Sosna, L'Simcha, L'Mayedim, Tevim, transformation, that these days should be transformed to joy and celebration, and Mayedim, Tevim, great holidays, beautiful holidays. Only Simchas personally, collectively, and ultimately, Simcha Selim Rol Resham, the great joy of the Gula Hamitis Vashleima. Be well and thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chasidisapplied.com slash donate.